Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a critic and writer. And today I'm going to be talking to Stephen Bradley, who is a film director, a film producer, a writer. And he is also someone who has written an amazing book, a really interesting, intimate account of his battle with cancer and how it relates to his career as a filmmaker. It's called Shooting and Cutting, A Survivor's Guide to Filmmaking and Other Diseases. And I, uh, it was one of those films, I read it in two sittings, essentially two train journeys, forwards and backwards. Uh, and I just, I, I was so, it, it, despite the fact that it's obviously dealing with very serious subject matter, it's so funny and it's so uh, intimate in the way it shares, uh, in the way he shares his experience with uh, with the reader, that it was just, uh, just amazing. Absolutely, really, really highly, highly recommended. Anyway, you'll, you'll, You'll be able to tell that from the conversation that you're about to listen to. If you enjoy the episode, please remember to like, to uh, to, to spread the word, uh, to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already subscribing. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. John T D R J O N T Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. And the other thing I have to ask you is, are you a vampire? Because you were you were tweeting about <clears throat> Athena 
at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, no, I'm just old. I just get up in the <laughs> middle. I just get up in the middle of the night. I use my phone as a flashlight to get to uh, to get to the toilet, and then mm. without waking my wife. And then uh, and yeah, and I'm obviously. I don't know about you, but I've I've recently discovered the joys of sit down peeing. Oh yes, well you see, when you have my condition, that's kind of um, sort of becomes pre prerequisite. Um, and uh, yeah, well, exactly. I, I have no such excuse, just laziness. <laughs> <laughs> I think, to be honest with you, I think all men should be taught that from an early age. <laughs> Standing is only for emergencies. <laughs> it's just for the roadside piss you can stand. <laughs> but uh, yeah, absolutely. No, I, uh, I mean, Twitter is killing me. I really have to sort of cut down on it because it's because uh, I just can't help scrolling through and and. Like commenting on stuff that by the way that film athena is is yeah is something else it's really gobsmacking yeah. i watched the trailer yeah did it get a theatrical release or what no i went straight i mean that that was one of the problems with i saw it at venice at the film festival and that's one of the problems with netflix uh had about five or six titles and almost every single one i thought this will be so good on the big screen i mean i mean i'm watching it on the big screen and this is so good i can't wait yeah. to and then of course you know you think white noise noah baumbach's film um bardo i didn't particularly like but it's a big screen movie it deserves right. you know deserves to be up on the big screen i mean yeah. what what's good about it is it's sort of epicness and yeah, this film is just like, it has long, continuous shots and it's just so, I mean, it does that so well. I know that's become a real cliche, but it's it's yeah. done so well. Yeah, yeah. the one in the, the opening shot of the trailer is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, don't watch, I, I would I would watch it as soon as you can, because I just Yeah, think well, I have invested in a, in a lovely big screen and a nice projector, so I will watch it on that. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. I think that I think that's Netflix's presumption is that people are watching on huge tellies and projecting screens and therefore, you know, and with with sound bars and all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And and when I say big screen, you know, I I have the biggest TV I could buy, and you know, I'm I remember my my film education was a black and white portable television with a dial balanced on dirty chair <laughs> by my bed. You know, yeah, dirty. yeah, yeah. I remember those days. When when was your first? When did you first sort of start getting into movies? What was your sort of uh, you know? What were the films that that blew you away? Well, sadly, I really wanted to be an actor to begin with, um, and that uh, that sort of mirage was blown out of the water pretty early. I did a I did a theatre tour in America after I left college, and I re I kind of realised how tough it was on the road, and also how mediocre I was as an actor. So that kind of went out the window. So then I started turning towards um, film. And actually, it's not in my book, but the first film I worked on was My Left Foot. I worked on as an assistant to the producer. And that was kind of an interesting start. And I suppose around that time, uh, the films that were blowing my mind as well, but just before that would have been Blue Velvet and a lot of David Lynch and those kind of, I mean, I suppose American mainstream films. As a kid, I would have been into, you know, James Bond and all of those things. And I mentioned I mentioned that, that I used to go and persuade. We didn't have a television when I was a child. So uh, what, what horror is that? I know, I know. And my parents tell the story of how we visited my grandfather on Christmas Day. And he did have a telly and how I wanted them to stop at two o'clock in the morning at a television shop to buy a television. So I had that obsession, you know, they, 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 they gave that obsession to me. 
And as I say in the book, um, I tried to persuade them to go to James Bond double bills with me and then they could go out for dinner afterwards. That was their reward. Was it, were they not having televisions because they were sort of terrible hippies? Or what was the excuse? No, I think it was kind of a, a hardworking Protestant aesthetic. Right. That, that's not hippie-ish at all. <laughs> no, no, it was, it was much more pure. It was much more Spartan than that. In, in the Ireland of my youth, which was really the 70s and early 80s, um, American cinema was kind of everything. You know, we didn't have access to really art house cinema at all. So when I say American cinema, obviously I'm lumping James Bond in with that. But, um, you, you know, it would have been a very limited fare that we would have had access to. And I mean, I lived in Cork for a lot of my childhood and that, that would have made it even more limited. Um, so it was really just... Um, an obsession with those sort of 70s films. I remember when I wanted to be an actor, um, I remember telling my dad I wanted to be Roger Moore, and he was like, I thought you said an actor. <laughs> <laughs> Good for your dad. My, my, dad's all, my dad's criticism was always wooden. That was his sort of like, he had, there were hams and there were people who were wooden. Michael Caine, wooden. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Hams and woodeners. Yeah. I, think there's a, I think there's a movie in there somewhere. <laughs> should be shouldn't there and so then you got work doing um working on uh, uh my left foot i mean that that sounds like a baptism of fire in some in some ways or you're throwing in thrown in at the deep end yeah i mean it was strange because obviously nobody knew it was going to become my left foot you know there, there was there were hardly any films being made at that time in ireland neil jordan was about the only person making films there were a few people in these like joe comerford um and, and various others, but, but they were making one film every five years. So I just happened to pitch in. When I came back from America as the failed actor, um, I rang up the only media lawyer in Ireland at that time, and he just happened, and I had done a law degree, and I basically said, I'm coming to work for you. I knew, I knew his brother a little, and I said, I'm coming to work for you. And the film that he was working on the financing of was My Left Foot. So within three months, I jumped out of the law office and onto the production. And that was just fantastic. I mean, it was amazing to see a film like that being made. And obviously Daniel was, had just come off the back of unbearable lightness of being and um, my beautiful Andrette and films like that and was kind of red hot. So that made it all very exciting. But obviously nobody knew it was gonna become an Oscar nominated Oscar winning film. And actually that didn't happen. We shot the film in 88 and the, the, it didn't, go to the Oscars until 1990. So it was it was glorious, except for the fact that I came off that film and there was no other film to go on to. So I had to go to London for the next chapter. Right, you didn't have, you just did, there just wasn't an industry there to be involved there was, with. There was no industry. I mean, there's a very big industry now, which really started in 1993 when the present president of Ireland was the Minister for Arts and he revitalized the Irish Film Board, which is the equivalent of the BFI over here. And that has really invested a lot of money along with uh, the tax scheme, which I know is also in Britain. Um, and, you know, it's had its ups and downs, but really since 1993, we have had an industry here. Whereas in 88, when I started, there was nothing going on. Mm, yeah, and all those, but yeah, I mean, those people at the early the early days of that Irish industry were, were sort of moving, you know, Neil Jordan very swiftly sort of moves on and makes things like Mona Lisa and, and stuff that's that's outside of Ireland, obviously. Yeah, he was sort of the leading light. Um, but interestingly, Jim Sheridan and he had worked together in theatre in a small theatre called the Project Arts Centre. Um, 
So Jim and he knew each other very well. And I suppose, you know, Jim kind of was jealous of what he was doing probably and went to New York film school and did a course there. And out of that came My Left Foot, which was pretty amazing, really. And I mean, for for Jim, I mean, I think I think I may be right in saying that that he's the he's the only he's the only director whose first three films were Oscar nominated. That's uh, that's amazing. And so when you went to London, I mean, like, you know, I mean, my mum is uh, Irish, uh, Northern Irish, uh, Northern Irish Catholic. And yes, I, I heard that on your uh, on your great interview with Gabriel Byrne. That was a wonder. I really enjoyed that conversation. His book is uh, is is a fascinating read. It is, and his stage show is even better. So you must try and see that at some point. Yeah, oh, I, I'd love to. That's the only. That's the only downside of uh, living in Italy is I don't get to see much theatre, which I should do because there are theatres around which have brilliant productions showing. Um, and I don't see any stand-up comedy, which I used to love when I was at Liverpool. And of course, you you are intimately involved in. I am. I am. I live. I have lived for 25 years among stand-up comedians, uh, which is a, a wild and wonderful circus, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to I used to lo- I, I fancied myself a little bit, not a stand-up comedian, but uh, a performance poet in the sort of John Hegley mold, uh, Attila the stockbroker, that sort of. Uh... <laughs> do you remember him? <laughs> he was a long time ago. I do. There were various of those around that time. Yeah. Yeah, I was one. Um, I was one of that bunch. I even played Glastonbury. It was uh, my my one claim to fame. And there was oh, brilliant! And there was a guy called Hovis Presley. Do you remember him? <laughs> no, but I yeah. want now. Yeah. I want to go back and find out what he was like. Yeah, yeah. You played Glastonbury. That was pretty spectacular. Well, it's the, the poetry tent. I mean, you get you're getting free, which is like being paid half half a week's. You know, being paid you know two weeks of wages, but. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I'm not going to downplay it too much. It was it was pretty good. It was pretty good. We were in a group, Liverpool. We had a little group called the Kitchen Club, and we used to try to sort of. But the other poets were all serious. I was the only one that was funny, and so I, I was the one that was most was most popular. Consequently, <laughs> and why did you not keep going with the stand up or get into stand up comedy then? Um, the poetry was really like uh, a way of of disguising the fact that I was doing stand up comedy. Um, it was, it was, you know, I, it was loads of jokes about uh, what was it? I did a poem called "Sex in a Woodwork Class," in which it was all the, all the, all the carpentry words for having sex. You know, I screwed her, I banged her, I hammered her, I shafted her. Then I took her home to mother, who used her as a spatula. That was the. <laughs> That was the. Oh, sort I love of... I love silly poetry. I mean, it it goes right back to Spike Milligan. Really, well, exactly. Definitely. String strings a very important thing. Rope is thicker, but string is quicker. <laughs> that's my Spike Milligan there. When I was when I was about five, I got or maybe four, I got caught copying one of those poems and claiming that it was my own in English. <laughs> that's like what's that film Jesse Eisenberg's in where he plays a Pink Floyd song and he convinces the school that he's written it. That's, what the heck's that? It's one of the it's Noah well, Baumbach films, isn't it? Right. Squid, the Squid and the Whale, I remember that. The Squid and the Whale, and I suppose it's a bit like that scene in Yesterday as well, where he's tr- he's trying to talk to them about the Beatles. <laughs> yes, I haven't seen that film yet, though. Ah, you should see it. It's a really great premise. I mean, the premise that this guy gets hit by a car and then when he when he comes to, nobody's, the, the Beatles didn't exist and he robs all their songs. That is a high point. That's a that's a real. There's an Italian comedy called uh, Non ci resta. 
uh, what's the, I, I can't remember the, the full Italian title, but it's basically um, uh, it, 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 there's nothing left to do but cry is the translation. And it's Roberto Benini and the guy from Il Postino, uh, Troisi. And oh, wow. They, wow. Tra- they travel back in time and he's trying to seduce this woman and he basically sings her yesterday. <laughs> yesterday. But he's Italian, so he can't remember the words. And he's going, <laughs> la, 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 la. <laughs> What's the English title of that film? Do you know? I don't even know if he got an English release. I'll Google it straight no, I, away. I'll but... look it up. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Non Ci Resta. Di Piangere, I think, is the. Uh, but I might be chewing that title to pieces. What's your What's your translation of that? It's sort of like there's nothing left to do but cry. Okay, okay, I was, oh right, you said that. Great. Okay, I'll look it up. But it's a great cast, and it's a. It's like Benini when he was just being an actor and being very, very funny, rather than as, a, as opposed to a movie star. Yeah, I mean, he's one of those guys who was was killed by the Oscar. You know, the minute he got that Oscar for Life Is Beautiful, he sort of yeah. like. That was the end of him as a creative force. I mean, he's still a wonderful human being. I still love seeing him and um, you know walking. I walked past him at a hotel, which made me made my day. He's one of those. Oh, characters. good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can I can imagine that. But anyway, we were in London with you, and you were and you were sort of pursuing your career in in the movies. Well, it wasn't so much in the movies. I went over to work um, for an Irish company called Windmill Lane who were famous because that's where U2 recorded all their albums in, in Windmill Lane in Dublin. And they were they had set up a post-production house and were attempting to make feature films in London and also had acquired a, an Irish TV, a commercial TV station, the first one. Um, so myself and Ed Guiney, who you may know as the producer of The Favourite and, and Lenny Abramson's The Room and those kind of things, he and I... Uh, were friends and had been to college together and he and I were sort of ridiculously titled heads of development or something in this in this in this getup and we were about 22 or something um, and none of that really worked out um, for various boring reasons and I came back after about a year and a half and myself and Ed set up a production company in 1992 I think uh, I worked briefly with Noel Pearson and Jim Sheridan they had got a deal with Universal after um, the Oscar success, I think, of, of the field at that point. Um, and they had a, a development deal with Universal. But again, it's sort of, it was all a bit messy and I was only there for a year. And then myself and Ed Guiney set up a company called Temple Films in 1992. Um, and we had a lot of fun. I mean, we, we sort of didn't know what we were doing, but we managed to make, I think, four or five feature films in eight years. Oh, that's um, pretty good going. Yeah, it was great. It was a time when you kind of could do that. It's, I think it's much harder to do that now. You know, they were low budget films and therefore we didn't need a whole lot of cast to hold them up. And as I say, the Irish Film Board was rebooted in 1993. And I think we were the first ones to make a, a film under that reboot, which was a, a very low budget film called Ailsa by Paddy Brannock, who has since gone on to make things like Viva and Rosie and mm. uh, quite a lot of TV drama. Um, and then, so, so we had that production company. I suppose my raison d'etre to be there was, you know, I'd sort of been dabbling in on the edges of producing and being a production assistant at that point. Um, but my reason for the company was really to try and write and direct. 
and I directed um, my first short in 1994, a film called Reaper, uh, which I shot in 35 mil in black and white. And it took me about a year to edit it because it, it, avid, avid editing had just started. So it was only a 12 minute film, but it would take a day to load all the rushes on. And then I'd get like half a day free edit. And then all the rushes that have to be taken off because a, a paying gig was coming in. Um, and actually that film, is, it's a, a, a very kind of quirky film. Ed described it as out there where the buses don't run. Um, but, and, and it had no success in getting into festivals for about six months until a fax came through one day saying that it had been chosen for competition in Venice, which was very lovely. And actually we had two films in Venice that year. We had a film called Guilt Trip. This was 1995. Um, by a writer-director called Jared Stembridge, who went on to make a film called About Adam with the Weinstein Company, or Miramax, I think, as it was then. Um, so that was that was great. Two films in Venice, and then my career has been downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I loved about the book, is there's this... Um... There's this sensation that you're you're sort of pursuing your filmmaking career, and as that biography is going on on one level, and then you're obviously battling with your health condition and cancer is going on in a sort of another time frame. Um, but the two interact so interestingly, uh, in, especially in terms of sort of oh God, I'm, we're going to get really deep here, but in terms of kind of questioning what your values are and what life is about and what um, what do you want. Yeah, well, as an, as an introduction to that, I mean, essentially what happened was after my last film, Noble, which I, for my sins, wrote, directed and produced for various reasons, and then spent a year on the road in America promoting it and, and other places, um, I was diagnosed. We, we moved back from London to Dublin uh, at the beginning of 2016, and I was diagnosed with a very advanced stage four bowel cancer that had already gone to a big tumor in my liver and later went into both lungs. So that was the start of a very hairy uh, three year, three or four years of treatment um, for, I'd say, the first of which I was pretty much bed bound. Mm. Um, and I had two big surgeries, about three small surgeries, loads of chemo, loads of immunotherapy, radiation, the whole, the whole shebang. <laughs> um, so it, you know, it gave me a lot of time to, to think. And as you say, to sort of um, while keeping up the optimism and that was that was, you know, sometimes difficult. But actually, my medics and my treatment were, were so brilliant. And I was just very, very lucky that all the treatments went my way. Mm. Um, there were, at the beginning, there were literally about 16 hoops that I had to jump through and, you know, all but about two went my way. Mm. Um, so it was a, a real time of reflection. And the book came out of, I met, I mentioned it in the book. I say, I met a writer. I can give you the exclusive that that writer was uh, Connor McPherson, who, who recently has had success with Girl in the North Country, the, his collaboration with Bob Dylan on Broadway and the West End. Right. Um, and Connor said to me at the beginning, you know, you've got to write everything down because otherwise mm. you're going to forget it. Not necessarily for a book, just all the technical stuff, all the medical detail, all... Mm the story of my life as it was then, because it really was all consuming. Um, so I decided to do that. And then my manager, Jane Russell, um, suddenly got a book deal with, a, with a, an Irish publisher and it became a real thing. So then I had to start treating it properly. And it was the editor at the, at the, at the book company, Mercier Press, 
who came up with the suggestion that I structured it the way that it is structured, which is to go back to stages in my career and then leap forward to the next stage in the cancer treatment. And I suppose um, the chapters are very short, which is why I think I get away with jumping between them so that when you come back to the next chapter in the cancer treatment, you still remember where I left off mm. and vice versa on the career, I think. Um, and I, I think I had done a similar structure with my last film, Noble, actually. It jumps to and fro from different time zones. And I think that if you can do it successfully, I think it, it, it can be very entertaining. And as it gives the audience or the reader a little bit of a crossword puzzle to, to enjoy. Mm. And um, I hope that it kind of keeps the pace up and keeps the interest up. Oh, it certainly does. I, I, I sort of, there was a bit of, it's one of those great books where you, you're ripping through it because it's such, you're so into it and you want to read it. Uh, but at the same time, you kind of don't want it to finish because you, you sort of, you, you kind of want, you, you get into that. I mean, it's, it, that sounds like such a weird thing to say about, you know, stage four cancer treatment, <laughs> but, um, but you sort of, you know, you, you're such good company. Oh, thank you for that. You want to stay. You want to stay with that voice a little. Spend a lot, of t- a little bit more time with that voice. Oh, that's a very nice thing to say, and thank you for that. And I, I mean, I suppose the other thing that I've used as a tool in it is humor, mm. um, because you know when you're going through cancer, or when you're struggling to make a film, probably um, you know gallows humor comes to the fore, and it's it's an incredibly powerful tool, um, and everybody that I meet in hospitals and obviously I still attend hospitals a lot because they look after me so well, but you know, there's always a sense of humor there. There's always dark humor. And obviously there are very tough times, but even then, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a very powerful human tool. I love that. The description of the, the doctor who you see at the beginning, you see her and you're thinking she's just started. She's not very good. She doesn't seem to be. And by the end of the book, you meet her again and she's like instructing someone else. And she, her career has gone on in the meantime. I know I was in there for so long that I did. I did see the progression of the medics and, and how yeah. quickly they can't climb the tree. And, you know, there were also because the Irish health system and I was in the public system here. I mean, the, a lot of people here would be in the private system more than would be in the NHS in, in the UK. Mm. So I was in I was in the public system here and you would see student nurses who were used a lot because there's such pressure on nursing um, and you could really tell who was a good student nurse and who wasn't. And I, I say in the book, I always thought that, the, you know, the powers that be should have come to us as the examiners because we could tell them exactly who was good and who wasn't. <laughs> right. You're the expert uh, you're test drivers. Like, like auditioning actors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I really like the sense as well of uh, that you express of sort of camaraderie between the the patients as well. That there's a sort of community that um, that everybody sort of is 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 supportive. Of course, you know there's the odd sort of person in the next bed who's getting on your tits. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's true. It is true, and that's part of getting through it. You know, and and you 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 start to get to know everyone's stories and what their problems are. And you're all rooting for each other and you're all wanting everybody to walk out the door. Yeah. As you go on in the journey of the book, you're sort of like, there are certain moments where you, where obviously, as you say, most of the things you're very clear go well for you. And it's a a positive story. And the fact that you're even writing the book, obviously, you know, it's a spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
but there are moments where you have setbacks as well and there are moments when it doesn't go quite so right and and, and i think it's interesting as well when you talk in terms of your mental health when when you know you, you're feeling the pressure of the of the whole situation yeah it's interesting because i was thinking about that earlier um and a lot of the medics were kind of quite um interested in how psychologically i could deal with what was a really long journey and i actually do think that the fact that i was used to developing films which takes years as you know did actually help me because i could understand the stages and i could understand that this was a long process and that there would be setbacks and there was a real psychological parallel between those things it, it, it that sounds like a strange thing to say but actually in terms of mental health i think it did help me that i that my professional life was based on developing feature films over a long period of years and sometimes getting them made and sometimes not and some of them being having disasters and having some of them having successes well i mean one example of the, that you give is the film that you're going to make with Cillian Murphy and um and George Martin that um uh, I forget the title of the film now. Because yeah, you called, it was it was called Wayfaring Strangers. That's right. Yeah, AKA the Unknown Soldier. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like I, maybe I broke the world record on that one um, for how close I came to shooting it. Mm. Um, it it essentially it was a film, or is a film. I mean, it's still a script that I'd like to make, even if I don't direct it. Maybe somebody else will direct it. Um, it's a film said in the Second World War in Burgundy about four British paratroopers who um, are dropped into the zone where the beginnings of the French resistance is starting. Mm. And it's it's a psychological thriller when they get stuck in a house with uh, the Nazis who capture them. Um, and I came, it, the film collapsed um, at about 10 to 6 on the Friday night when we were meant to be starting shooting on the Monday. And Killian, Killian Murphy had just had his hair cut for his role as a 1942 British soldier. Um, and it was a troubled production in the sense that um, it was a weird one. We had lots of different setbacks on the financing. The first of which was the most shocking because the French producers I was working with had just made Jacques Odiar's film Un Prophet, The Prophet which had been nominated for an Oscar. That's just a huge success. I remember it. It's an amazing um, film. And, and um, the French TV company that was concerned um, pulled their financing, you know, on the first week of pre-production. And that was kind of inexplicable to me. And then I replaced that uh, with the Irish co-producers. I replaced that money. So we continued. And then on the last week, there was a whole kerfuffle about um, the how how the tax scheme was going to work, you know, the tax money, it's mm. too boring to go into, but that actually was kind of defeated the whole production finance structure. And uh, literally we went down on the last day of pre-production. And as I say, I've, I mean, I've never heard it happen to anybody else. Um, and it was terrible. It was traumatic. I mean, the, the production designer, who's a very experienced guy called Mark Geraghty, who at the moment has just designed Bad Sisters. I don't know if you've been watching that on Apple Plus. It's oh, a right, Sharon yeah. series. Uh, he designed that. He's designed lots of things. He designed uh, Calvary for John McDonough. Um, so he was he was with me in the trenches in France. And he said to me, you're going to have to treat this like a death. You're going to have to grieve for your production because 
when you get to the last day of pre-production, the film is in your head. You've prepped it. You've cast it. The cast are all with you. The crew are all with you. You've tested explosives, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And you've persuaded George Martin to make his feature film debut at the age of 88 or what he was then. And he would have been fantastic. You know, he was he was an amazing match for Killian. So Killian was playing his character at a much younger age when he went to fight in France. And then George Martin was playing the character in old age, going back to visit a woman now in her 60s, but who he had saved as a baby in the story of the film. Um, and George would have been wonderful. It was, um, there was a great, um, there was a great night when I took Killian to meet uh, George at his flat in London. Um, and I suppose Killian might've been a bit nervous that this was, you know, he, he's a massive Beatles fan. I mean, I can't tell you what a huge Beatles fan he is. So he was nervous not only to meet George, but he was also nervous about working with, in a film with somebody who, who, you know, who hadn't acted before. Now, I had seen loads of George on film, so I knew how brilliant he was. Um, the BBC had just made an arena called George Martin Presents, in which there's loads of stuff with him on, on camera, kind of doing bits of acting in front of the Beatles and stuff. It's a great film. So I knew that, that um, he, he was going to be brilliant, but I suppose Killian was a little bit nervous about it. So George mixed us martinis um there's a scene of him doing that in that bbc documentary when he was 40 or something with the beatles and the beatles taking the piss out of him saying he's going to be the next james bond but anyway he mixed us these martinis and sat us down and then he said he looked killian in the eyes and he said so killian where did you train i trained at lambda and of course killian i don't think it had any formal training <laughs> <laughs> kind of pulled the rug out from underneath him. And after that happened, then Killian was just laughing and we, we had a great night. And 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 Killian said to me, no, no you're totally right about me. He's going to be amazing. Oh, brilliant. Oh, God, that's such a, that's so tragic because obviously that, that yeah, it's it's the, those films that, the, that didn't get made, they do, they look like the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi, the sort of blue shimmering thing that stands beside yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, you know, that it took a long time to get over it. Uh. The only reason that psychologically I really did get over it was that I already knew that I had Finance Noble. Right. And I was able to go straight back onto that. And I, I wrote a couple more drafts of that straight away. And within nine months of the collapse of Wavering Strangers, I was in Saigon with a DOP and the producer uh, wrecking to make that film. And that's the only reason that I kind of survived the my fall in France, as I call it. Um, how, how could you keep your like anxiety <laughs> down when you're, because I mean, that would be, that would be, I would just be thinking it's going to happen again. It's going to happen yeah. again. No, you're so right, John. It's really interesting that you say that because that's exactly how I felt. And I was producing Noble and raising the money for Noble. Um, and I had, the had to talk to the financiers constantly. And I had it in the back of my mind. And I would be, I remember being on a recce in Liverpool, actually. We shot a lot of it in Liverpool. We shot right. all the Dublin stuff in Liverpool and Barrow in Furness. Oh, um, both my towns. Yeah, both your towns. Yeah. Um, and um, I remember being on a recce uh, with 25 heads of department late on in pre-production and getting a call from one of the financiers who had some issue to bring up and just feeling in the pit of my stomach, the dread that it was going to happen again. 
Um, but, you know, fortunately it didn't. And, and Noble was a wonderful experience. We shot it in Saigon and Baron Furness and Liverpool, and it was just an incredible experience. So that made up for the fall in France. But you're right. You know, the, it was a big tragedy not not seeing George, not getting that performance on screen. And um, I'm still going to make that film. Though. That's the that's it's still there that because it's a period film set in the Second World War um, it's still very makeable. Yeah. Um, I may not direct it. I may try and, you know, get a much more bankable as the, the term they use in the business, a much more bankable director to do it. It's not an expensive film. I mean, it, mm. it could do with some really um, top line cast to help it in terms of distribution. But I, I, I wrote it specifically, you know, for it not to be. It's it's a very claustrophobic um, psychological thriller set in a big old farmhouse. Mm. in in France and of course I had found the perfect big old farmhouse and that was another tragedy which was that we never got to use it god damn it god damn it but then I mean as you say if you're ready to go you know I mean you have some of those ideas are, are, are already there um you know you want you want some of that lovely streamer cash you want someone to to come along with some yeah listen it's there and i mean as killian murphy said to me the great thing is it's not we didn't shoot a third of it and collapse in which case nobody's going to touch it right 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 you know um it's there and i still own the script and you know it's it's i really like it and it's not expensive so we'll get there one day yeah it reminds me there's a bit in the what louis ck episode of his show louis where he 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 looks around the house in new york that he decides he wants to buy even though it's like 50 million dollars or something and he's trying to go he goes to his accountant and sort of says but i really like it and they're going but you haven't got this it's ridiculous you can't get and i sort of think about i think about that friday and there must have been a moment where you were going well can't i sell my house can't you know look at the back of the sofa let's see if there's anything no, i know i know we had done everything yeah and there were just it just conspired against us. I mean, the 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 Irish Film Board probably could have saved it. The chief executive had just started his job and he'd gone on holiday. Oh so, man! You know, he wasn't he wasn't able to kind of involve himself to the level that it would have needed. Um, it was just one of those things. It was a a domino effect, and you just you know, it's like trying to stop the tide. Sure, sure. Uh, but then you, as you say, you go on to your to to your next film, and you have your and you have your a uh, noble, and you have your uh, an experience with that was much more positive, and um, and then you caught, and then kind of life life throws up throws another spanner in the works. Yeah, big time, which you don't see coming. And I mean, I talk about it in the book. You know, it's frustrating because noble did pretty well you know it, it won a stream of like seven audience awards within six months in america um and it was chosen at Cannes for this thing called Cannes cinephile i don't know if you know about mm. that yeah um and you know there was there was there were moments where it kind of could have really taken off but in any case it would have been you know a useful calling card and i never really got to use it at that point as a calling card because mm. i was in hospital yeah and it's interesting as well well interesting it's such a vanilla word but that that when you start to recover when you start to think okay i'm i'm not out of the woods yet but i want to sort of re-enter the world you know i want mm. to reclaim my life 
um, how you sort of uh, how you have a, um, an attitude towards that of, of like I you, you have to go back into hospital again as you say in the book, but you you make sure you go out as soon as you can so that people will see you so that you haven't disappeared. You know, it's it's almost like you've got this strategy to reinsert yourself into the into the business. Yeah, it's an interesting one because Deirdre O'Kane, my wife, who's a yeah. very well-known stand-up comedian here, hence the reference to stand-up earlier. Yes. She um, had to continue working telling jokes while I was in, 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 in hospital, which was very tough for her. But she also made a decision not really to talk to anybody about me and definitely not to use the phrase stage four or anything like that. Mm. Because she just thought, you know, if, if people go... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Stage four, they're just going to write him off. Mm. Um. And I think psychologically, that's that's probably true. And I talk about how in the book, when I did emerge and I had to kind of make, choose a moment in time when I was fit enough, I meet people who either didn't know I was ill because time moves so fast, they mightn't see me for year to year anyway. Mm. And then other people who did know I was ill but didn't expect me to be walking around the town again because they'd heard such terrible stories. Um, so it was psychologically, there were two things. One was just to get out there and be seen, you know, almost as my former self. Um, and the other thing was to get back developing films. Mm. So that, um, I mean, I now have two feature film scripts that are, you know, pretty much ready to go that I've been developing over the last four years or since I was able to start working again. Sure. I couldn't do anything for the first year. Um, and also last, I've done, a, I've set up a couple of TV series. I did a series with, with Deirdre for Sky last year, actually. So I've, I mean, I've been back on the set as well. Brilliant. So now I'm kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm just back out there hustling like I was in the old days. And um, do you think there's an element that like, um, I'm not sure if Ireland is like this, but I found the Anglo-Saxon world is a bit like this, that when it comes to ill health and, uh, ill health and, and, and death, ultimately. Um, I, I don't know. There are other cultures which seem to be better at incorporating and talking about it. I mean, like, for instance, when uh, when my dad died, I remember turning up at Cannes, um, uh, you know, a few months later, and very much the English people were like, either didn't mention it as a sort of like, I don't want to go there, or um, or said a very mm, sorry sorry about your loss sort of thing uh, formula, you know. Um, 
I'm not criticizing them. That's 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 fine. But I found my, the friends that I'd made in Brazil and you know all over the world because you know, international journalists would sort of embrace me and like, how are you doing? Tell me how you are. And, you know, okay. And, and would really, you know, they didn't, and they, I might even know them less well, but they were much more, you know, um, less frightened of it. Yes. I think that's very true. And we have, I mean, in Ireland, Ireland does death very well. Wakes and funerals are very well handled. Right. Um, but I think you're right, particularly with cancer, because it's still mm. kind of taboo, that C word. And, you know, it's becoming less so. And I've I've um, I'm on a government committee now, which is to try and incorporate cancer patients experience into into the way that government policy is and things like that. But you're right. And in Ireland, we have those stock phrases, you know, sorry for your troubles and and they and they sort of get you out of you know you can say one of those stock phrases and your duty is done mm. but it's much harder to engage on the level that maybe your brazilian friends or whatever which is a, a kind of much more personal um affectionate thing I, th I think we do find that hard and i mean i find it hard myself even since i've been ill with mm. other people who i know have become ill i'm i'm not i'm not great and there's a couple of times that i'd wish i'd you know, written cards and things where I didn't. And and we just have to learn from it. Um, but I, I do think cancer remains uh, a very scary word. Mm. Um, and hopefully will become less so. I mean, I know that, you know, that Joe Biden has recently announced this moonshot. I mean, I, I think the the uh, campaign is is a few years old, but he he's investing a load of money to, to and obviously he, his son died of cancer and uh, he's he's got a, personal uh, experiences there but i i think huge strides forward are being made i mean you know there's no tw 20 years away ago there's no chance i would have survived none right. whatsoever right um and it's about telling those stories it's about telling all the positive stories and all the progress and the fact that you know there's some crazy statistic like one in three people are going to get cancer in their lifetime now, obviously, most of them are going to get it when they're 85. And, you know, that's that's what they go out on. And, and possibly they've got lots of other issues. Um, but I, I think it will become much more about um, living with cancer rather than dying from cancer. And I think that's the big positive message. I mean, obviously, that there are exceptions and tragic exceptions. And, and a lot of people have really rough times. And a lot of people just aren't lucky in the way that I was in terms of your response to I was hearing about some there's always these new leaps forward in cancer treatment and there was another one this week that was on all the news and it said you know the statistics are it was a very small trial but you know six out of ten people responded well to the treatment but for the other four people it's just unlucky yeah yeah, yeah. it's really unlucky I mean my own uh, sister who was a who was a very brilliant doctor died when she was 40, 41 of, of breast cancer. I, I've dedicated the book to her and I talked yes. about her a little bit in the book. Um, and she was unlucky. There just weren't the drugs then that probably would be there now for her. And the ones that were there, she didn't respond to, you know. And that's a, that's a really tough thing about uh, cancer treatment. And as I say at the end of, my, of the book, I can't explain why I responded so well, apart from the fact that the medics were so brilliant, but I can't explain why chemically 
I responded so well to all the chemicals that were pumped into me. Um, and you just have to be hugely grateful for that. And I suppose, you know, inevitably you feel a little bit of survivor's guilt for it because you're the lucky one. Absolutely. And I think you you put it beautifully at the end of the book where you're talking about uh, you've used that painting by your friend, the fighter, as a sort of inspiration and a, a sort of pull star to sort of keep your eye on. But at the same time, you sort of reject that whole sort of vocabulary of battling and battling cancer and and that sort of stuff, because it's like the people, as you say, you know, it's just sometimes it's just at a molecular level and you, it's got nothing to do with your your willpower you know um yeah yeah it's it's that's a really interesting one and, and that happened because a friend of mine who was also a friend of my sister's actually a doctor had written as i was finishing the book he wrote an article about that about the the language used you know that you're fighting against cancer that it's a battle that he you know he died after a very brave battle against whatever and there's a kind of feeling that we shouldn't be using that language and that, that it's unfair to the people who, who aren't lucky. Yes. Um, I'm kind of ambivalent about it because sometimes it just feels like a fucking fight. Right. You know, <laughs> you yeah. know? And, yeah. and it did. And I, I, you know, sometimes we're all just, and to take, to take that language away completely sort of, sometimes I just, get annoyed and go well when you go through it it does feel like you're fighting you yeah know? yeah something yeah i guess some people are fighting you know um with with the weapons that were with the gun loaded yeah. and other yeah. people have been handed yeah. an empty gun well know? exactly but you're you know you're you are battling demons and self-doubt and yeah yeah you know thoughts in the middle of the night and you know so i don't think you can take the language away completely yeah and I suppose that optimism, which everybody says is is something that you have to have, you you know, it actually helps you because it reduces stress and it helps your immune system, is another thing which you know, without being too glib, it's another thing that you get from uh, from working in film because you kind of have to be sort of sometimes stupidly optimistic in order to keep going. Oh, ridiculous! Yeah, I mean, I, I described it as gambling. The other day to my dad and he said well you said it <laughs> you know because it is ma making films is, is is a total gamble um yeah and my last producer melanie gore grimes who who produced noble with me she came from the the lovely world of commercials where they all make an absolute fortune and you know the weekly rates are crazy to me and she you know she 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 worked really hard on noble and and um you know, we had a decent budget and we all got well paid to make it and we didn't have to defer our fees, which you often have to do. And she said, but she said to me, at the end, yeah, but ultimately it's still really a hobby. <laughs> it's not a profession, <laughs> you know, and, and it, you know, it's, it's tough at the level that I'm working at where you're making a film every few years, you know, it, it's, it, you've got to have some bread and butter filling in with telly and other bits and pieces. Otherwise you're not going to make it. But isn't that true all over our industry? Everybody seems to have to have a day job. I mean, I, I don't know any journalist who is a film journalist, pure and simple, that they yeah. almost all got Q&A gigs or they write copy for publicists or, they, yeah. or they're on festival selection committee. They're, nobody no, just purely does one thing. I, I think that's totally true. And, and you know, the days of the well-paid... Uh, film reviewer for the times who was there for 30 years um and had a lovely expense account and all of that it's really gone because it's so competitive now isn't it mm -hmm. and it's so fragmented 
you know, and you make a film and you realize that 10,000 other people made a film that year. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you're trying to get into festivals and, you know, you realize the level of competition. And there's a craziness to that, too, which it, I mean, which means that 90 percent of films never get seen. Mm. You know, yeah. it's not easy to get on the, the streamer platforms. It's just as difficult it is, as it is to get into a festival. Um, which is why I think in a weird, in a, in a strange way, cast have be- have become important again. There was a dip there where cast weren't as important to, to, to things, but I think cast is really important now in terms of punching through. I mean, there's so much noise, mm. you know, that even with the podcast, like punching mm. your podcast through and, um, uh, it, it, the cast have become really important again, I think in terms of, in terms of promotion and, and, punching through the noise. I was on a very early, a, a year or so ago, I was uh, involved in a film, which uh, which for legal reasons I can't talk about. Um, and uh, I remember being at, uh, past two pieces of paper for, for potential casting issues. And one of them was sort of like our A-list and it had all the names you would imagine. Yeah, that it the would usual. Have. Yeah. And the other was the B-list and I was shocked by the names that were there, because I was just thinking, they're not on the A-list. I mean, they were, you know, they were really, really, I won't, for for reasons also of propriety, I won't name any of them here, but every single one of them, you would go, that, that's a very, very famous person. Why are they, that's a very famous actor. Why is that not the A, the A-lister? And it was like, well, just because we can't get money with them. We can get money with these. We can't get money with these. Do you remember that really crass thing that there used to be? At, I think it was at, at the Cannes Film Festival, but maybe it was at all the festivals. It was it was literally um, a pamphlet called Star Power, oh, and it had right. the lists. It had the lists of actors from one to a hundred, from starting at a hundred. So Daniel Day Lewis would be a hundred, and then it would work its way down, all the way down, and it was a survey of the sales agents and how much use an actor was to them in terms of pre-sales and sales. Right. Right. Wow. It was was literally a published, I mean, it it was a piece, it was, you know, it was a little magazine that I remember getting at Cannes in the, in the mid 1990s. I haven't seen that, but that, that definitely still exists in some form. It'll just be an email list. Yeah. I'd say it's it's not as public as it was then, you know, Mm. I mean, it was, it was this weird, it was kind of like, um, you know, a meat menu. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, there was a time in the US where they used to publish a sort of like who can open a picture sort of poll. And I remember it was like between Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood for many years. It was like f- yeah. five yeah. or six years. And it was it was published by the like the, the cinema owners. It was the, you know, right. It was like who who would you be most excited about getting a film from? Who yeah. who would you sort of like? Oh, this is going to fill fill the you know we're going yeah. to sell a lot of tickets. Well, and the truth is, you could count them on the fingers of two hands. You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but this was literally went all the way down. So you might right. be getting, you might be looking for somebody at ninety seven, and then you'd have two from the thirties or something. You know, so it wasn't just your B list; it was your C list and your D list. Right, you know, which, right. Anyway, yeah, it's it's. It's a weird and wonderful thing about uh, film film financing that that um, that that grading of actors. And I love I love the way that outside uh, the the sausage factory, you know, people looking in are just so you know 
if you oh if you've got that person i've heard of them you, you'll have no trouble making your film it's like Meh, not no, really i you know, know. i know really. you, you hear of that all the time you know and then you know it so much takes away from you know my most wonderful experience on any film is when i cast and meet the cast and work with the cast and shoot with the cast because that that is the most joyful thing about directing a film is mm. the incredible actors and what they bring to it and how much they improve it mm. and how much they bring the unexpected and you know sometimes how tricky they can be but that's all part of uh your job of getting the best performance and making the best film you can but really i absolutely love actors and obviously you and i both want to be actors so <laughs> if, if we could have been successful actors we would have been but you know there's good actors there's something just so ethereal and magical about them um, and they are few and far between as you know mm. and it's terrifying mm. when you're casting child actors it becomes even more terrifying because so few children can act um, and so those are the two divides of it you know how much respect I have and how much love I have for actors and then you have you know you get involved in having discussions with sales agents which which are about you know pieces of meat yeah, exactly. I mean, looking at the Don't Worry Darling and all the sort of stories coming out there and you're thinking Harry Styles is, you know, is going to be this name that people are going to bandy around now as sort of like, oh, he can open a movie, but he could probably close a movie at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, you, you, you have to be slightly cynical about all that publicity as well. You know, it's probably been oh, good yeah. for the film. And I, I think I was reading last night that it's opened really well and they're looking at 25 million for the first week in the States. And and uh, listen, job done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, from one level, it looks like a car crash. But then again, people like to go and see car crashes. So, you know. <laughs> absolutely. I was I was thinking yesterday about your your homeland and the car crash that was the budget yesterday and how anybody could come anybody in their right mind could come up with that and think it was a good idea. I oh my know, God. So. I mean, it's literally like they're saying the bit that they usually keep silent aloud. It's, it's, it's almost yeah. like, it's like, it's like, they actually if, said this. <laughs> yeah. They actually said, you know, Oh yeah. And we're letting the rich off. There's no way they're hiding it or yeah. it's crazy. It's yeah, so it's crazy. It's bad. I don't think it'll last long. I don't think it can. No. I think that's just so outrageous that it's going to have massive consequences. I'm just so glad I don't live there anymore. And then I live in Italy and we've got sort of Tolkien-inspired fascists who are going to yeah. win yeah. Uh, on Sunday. Yeah. We've got an election on Sunday, so that's going to be... Uh, yeah, I've been reading a little bit about that. It's yeah, It's all in flux, isn't it? Absolutely. I just, I don't know. I remember when I was in university in the 1990s, we used to shout fascist at people and we were just having fun. You know, we didn't, nobody believed Michael Portillo was actually a fascist or Michael Heseltine was actually a fascist. And then you get to, the, you know, the ripe old age of 50 and you're looking around and oh, oh, you're actually fascists. You're using the symbol. You've got Mussolini's great grandson in your rally on your platform, you know. And it's just like, what, what happened, man? I know, I know. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I'm, I think I'm slightly older than you, but if I say our generation, I think our generation have had this kind of, I mean, obviously there were Vietnam wars and awful things like that, but in a weird way, we had this post second world war uh, freedom and not going to, you know, never forget and not wanting to go back there now. And now we've had enough generations past that we've kind of forgotten all about it. Um, and, you know, human nature being what it is, it's going berserk again. Yeah, absolutely. I totally, I totally agree. I mean, we had, 
Yeah, but oh god, anyway, let, no, stop, let's stop this quickly, <laughs> quickly. Um, one thing I did, I did want to to ask you towards the end. Uh, uh, one thing we we haven't spoken about, you've you've mentioned briefly, but it's the importance of your family in this book, especially your wife Deirdre. And it's am I pronouncing the name correctly? Well, there's lots of different pronunciations. She would pronounce it Deirdre. Deirdre. Okay, well, I'll pronounce it Deirdre. Whereas Deirdre would be the Coronation Street uh, pronunciation. Yeah, which is not, which is not, never the answer to anything. Uh, So Deirdre, um, especially, but even in terms of, you know, when you tell, when you talk to your children about it, and it's such a, I don't know, it's such a, it, it enriches the sort of the, the book and it also makes you realize how important having that kind of support is. Oh, completely vital. I mean, everything reduces itself to family, you know, when you go through an experience like that. And, and if you're, you know, all families are a little bit dysfunctional, but if you have what is at heart, a, a genuinely lovely family, as I do on all sides, um, that support was just massive. And the world reduced to that you know i mean when i when i was bedbound for the first year um you know i was literally living in one room and having visiting family and that's all that the world is and you don't have much interest in anything else i mean since i've got better i've been i've been thinking you know i should have made myself watch a film every day as an mm. education you know but you're just not in that space you have no interest in what you're just literally focusing on your body and your mind, and you're using the support of the family around you, you know, absolutely unashamedly using everybody Mm. because you need them so badly. Um, And I talk about in the book how I reverted to the state of a child. And I I literally did. You you become childlike again um, and you use the support of your parents and uh, your parents-in-law and particularly your your spouse, and then the kids you use as a source of joy. And, and I say in the book that we didn't tell them for a long time until I was really through the out of the woods sure. um, that I had cancer. And, you know, my daughter said that she suspected it because she saw a text at some point or something. And my son kind of said, well, why didn't you tell us or something? Mm. Um, but uh, you use the joy of them arriving home from school and them setting off in the morning and all of their routines. You use that joy to to upholster your own childlike cocoon that you've now taken place in so so absolutely family when you have a supportive family and obviously some people aren't are unlucky enough not to have that but i was lucky enough to have it uh you you find yourself using it unashamedly and not feeling any guilt for that and and them allowing you not to feel guilt for it because of they they know the horrors that you're going through mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and for Deirdre, it was so tough because, as I say, she was out on the road, you know. She had just written a new show when we came back from London. Um, but that became the mainstay of the family finances and her own sanity. And also, I suppose, her own, I'm going out in the world and pretending that everything's fine. And I'm only telling a very select few that everything isn't fine. Yeah. And therefore, living a weird double life uh, where... You know, she's coming home to somebody who, you know, not only is useless to her in 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 the ways that I might have been useful before, but she also has to do a lot of work looking after. Mm. Um, so so the, I do talk a lot about that in the book. And and um, that's that's, uh, 
you know, that it's sort of the book is a little bit of a love story to my family as well. Yeah, yeah. And I should definitely feel that. I love the bit where you're going into the operating theatre. This is quite late on in the treatment, I think. And she's going onto stage, onto the stage and, and doing doing a show at the same time. And it's just like, wow, what a situation to find yourself in. And there's another one I think I talked about early on when mm. I just had the first operation and she had lost her script. Right. Well, she was demented. And she was coming in, you know, she was calling me and coming into me and saying, I've lost the script. How am I going to, she was doing a show like in front of a thousand people or something. And, and fortunately I, I get a text. I describe in the book, I get a text saying I found it. And then my relief, like lying in a hospital bed. <laughs> I, just, I worry so much about, I mean, stand up. I write about stand up in the book and what an incredible art form it is and how I think it's the most difficult of them all. Mm. Um, but for, for the partner, it's also very stressful. Like Deirdre's out on tour at the moment. She's away for three nights. And, you know, as soon as I think she's off stage, I'm on the phone just to see how it went. Because every audience is so different and every dynamic is so different. And every experience of whether it's a technical problem or a, a, a rowdy table at the front that really put her off and annoyed her. All of these things, every story of every show is different. And it, it's kind of I'm always in there just to make sure she's fine. And also when she says, oh, no, it was a great gig on the standing ovation, then I'm, um, that's made me for the night. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's almost like she needs to go through a decompression. You know, you have to, oh. like a deep sea diver, you know. Just oh, to... big time. I mean, the adrenaline yeah. quantities coming yeah. off stage are phenomenal. Like, that, you know, two hours of deep decompression, absolutely. Mm, mm, God, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, that, yeah, that's an amazing part of your story. And it, it it's really... Um, I, it, as I say, it really feels like it's sort of, a, 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 again, another level of sort of enter the entertainment business is sort of in, infringing and to some extent, you know, that's your working, that's your working family life. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, very... it's the circus. I mean, it's, we're, <laughs> we're, we are, we are a circus family. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the kids have to put up with that sometimes, you know, and so, so the kids came to Vietnam when we were filming in Vietnam, they were there for three months and we had to get special dispensation from the school and they had to do have a have a you know a tutor and send back work and all that kind of stuff so right wow wow what about what about the future then you're saying you having these you've got these scripts done and sort of ready to go um yeah i'm, I'm working with um two great producers i'm working with a, 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 a the, the film that i hope hope and think is going to go first is a film called friend the man Mm. which is a, a comedy set in the world of um, a hapless football assistant in the League of Ireland who gets caught up in a, in a, in a Far Eastern gambling sting. Um, and it's, it's produced actually by Colly McCarthy, whose first film came out on Netflix this week. I Used to Be Famous, it's called. And I think it's, it's, it's playing number two in the charts in the UK on Netflix. Excellent. Uh, and that's really good. Um, and written by a writer called Richie Conroy, who made a low-budget TV version of the same character about 15 years ago and has kindly allowed me to direct this. Um, but uh, it's a mockumentary. Right. Excellent. So it'll be a lot of fun. And uh, we've got some exciting cast on that. And then the second one I talk about a lot in the book, The Safe. Yes. Yes. Um, so... A guy called Kuhn Mokaneel is going to produce that, who produced uh, a film called Erocht, which was, I think, long-listed for the Oscars for Best Foreign Film. And he's just made another Irish-language film called Rosha and Frank, 
which is about a woman who thinks that her husband has come back in the reincarnated form of a dog and is a wonderful uh, comedy that is playing in the, in the cinemas in the UK and Ireland at the moment um, and has won a lot of awards in America and just got an American distribution deal, actually. So he's come on board The Safe as producer. Um, and The Safe is about um, a father and son who run a rural garage at the time of the last financial crash. Right. And the father doesn't trust the banks and has taken all their life savings out and bought an old American Wild West safe and put, put the money into the safe and then promptly lost the combination numbers. <laughs> um, so that, that's the very beginning of the film. And obviously it's a caper film about them trying to get the safe open, but really it's a film about <coughs> them re re resolving their relationship as father and son with other various personal crises going on at the same time. Have you ever, have you had any interest or thought about um, turning the book into something? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, really. I don't know what it be can become other than a sort of after the fact documentary. Right. Yeah. You can really do a drama wrong. No, I don't think so. And because, <coughs> it's a, because it's after the fact, I think, you know, you sort of needed to be shooting as you went along. Mm -hmm. uh, which, which interestingly never occurred to me. And I, it occurs to me to shoot most things in my life, but that sort of shows me how ill I was that I couldn't, that I didn't even think, oh, I should be, I should get someone to film this. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, you know, worried about how it's going to go and not wanting a film that, that didn't have a happy ending. It's serious. Stephen's not, not asking anyone to come around in a film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a yeah. level yeah. of seriousness. Never like occurred to me. Never occurred yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like you've got no end of projects there. And, uh, you know, I, I sound a bit yeah. like my mum who, who <laughs> always says to me, why don't you just write a book about a wizard, a little boy wizard? Why don't you oh, do I that? Know. They seem I to know, be popular. And it's like, oh, yeah. I know, I know. It's always, I, I've missed that one. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But it is like that film people did. They do want the next one. They want another war film when you just had a successful well, war What that's it, I'm... I'm always pitching stuff and I'm always saying, I, I, I think about it like Gladiator, right? Where no one had made um, a Roman movie for donkey's years. And so that's the, that's the story you want to pick. And, you know, or you want to pick pirate movies where nobody's made a pirate movie since Crimson Pirate, well, yeah, Crimson Pirate or Cutthroat Island. Did, yeah, didn't do. yeah. You know, you want that, you want to try to see, think of something that hasn't been done for ages. Yeah, well, it, interestingly, there's a chapter in my book about wanting to make a Napoleon movie. Right. Because he, because he had those Irish characters with him at the end on St. Helena. And of course, Ridley Scott is making a Napoleon movie coming up very shortly. But, uh, you know, so we'll have to see what that's like, because I've been talking about the writer of that, and we have we have an idea that's 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 much more a comedy. But, you know, by the time you develop it, Ridley Scott's will have come out five years earlier anyway. So, yeah. Um, interestingly, I'm doing a documentary about between now and Christmas about six authors who are vying for the Irish book of the year. So oh, that's right. A, that's appropriate for your podcast. Um, yeah. I don't I don't know who they are yet. and They don't know who they are yet, but it'll, it'll be kind of fun to do it. Excellent. And speaking of books, what would be your recommended film book? Oh, am I only allowed one? Is no, you're like allowed. A, not not a single person has chosen one book. They've all. <laughs> is it like Desert Island Discs? It you're yeah. only allowed one. You're um, allowed Walter Murch's there, conversations. There's one. Is that back to front now for you? No, no. Conversations no. with Wilder, Cameron Crowe. 
Do you know that book? I, I, I do not know. I do oh, not. This is an amazing book that I constantly dip into and read, and you can dip into it because it's about Cameron Crowe, Hollywood director, mm. um, forming a friendship really with Billy Wilder just before his death and persuading Wilder, who took a lot of persuading, to let him come to his office and do interviews. And um, it's, it's an extraordinary book of, uh, of uh, somebody who really gets under Wilder's skin and uh, reviews the whole gamut of his work and talks about the relationships with Diamond and um, Brackett and, and his writing journey and all of that. So I'd recommend that for definite. Excellent. Um, what else do you want? Uh, my Lunches with Orson, Peter oh. Biscuit. Do you ever read that? Yes, yeah. It's Henry Jaglum, isn't it? The Oh, Henry Jaglum, yes. Sorry. His Conversations the... with Henry, Henry Jaglum, yes. Yeah, that's a, a really bitchy book. That's the bitchiest. Yeah, it's like Orson Welles uh, is bitchiest. And I'm not entirely sure I trust Jaglum. No, but I, I'm fascinated by books that are like that. There are kind of, I mean, there's another one here. Um that that's probably I haven't read it for years, but it, it's probably been cancelled at this stage. The Devil's Guide to Oh Joe Esterhas. Oh, I would be interested in reading that. Yeah, no, that's a great read. Now, as I say, probably even more politically correct, incorrect than than when I read it first. If you know what I mean. No, absolutely. Um, Esterhas um, was the Basic Instinct and uh, the Music Box and yes. Showgirls. Yeah, and and you know he was the biggest. He was the highest paid screenwriter in the world for ten years, mm. uh, and could and could sort of do no wrong. And had his famous battle with what was that? C Mike Mike Ovitz uh, at CAA. You mm. remember Mike Ovitz, who was kind of king agent for like the whole of the eighties. Yeah, yeah, I know. And and, um, and Esther has took him on in a way that no other screenwriter has ever had the power to take him on. I think so. All of those stories are in there. I mean, it's it's just really colourful, and you know, plenty of it is naff. Mm. Um, and but you know, I like those kind of books where I, I love the colour of you know the various stages of Hollywood and all of that. Um, and then Stephen King on writing, I'm sure you've read. You know, I haven't. I've got it, but I haven't read it yet. I've read, I went through a period of reading every Stephen King book ever. Right. And that's I did a great, I think that's, really that's a really great read. Great. And then obviously the other one, the other Bible is Room to Dream, the David Lynch. Oh, it's so good. Uh, I've, I heard the audio book of that, which has David Lynch doing the, the intersecting chapters. And and going off script quite a lot. If if you've not heard it on Audible, oh, I haven't. I didn't know there was an audio book. It's well worth. Yeah, it's well worth listening because David Lynch, because he sort of talks about at one point he's talking about school. So you'll have the chapter, the sort of normal biography chapter, and then it'll, you'll have him just reminiscing about what happened in that period. And so he's talking about school and and usually it's David Lynch going, you know, I, my dad loved trees and I, oh, he was wonderful. <laughs> and then he says, school was, school was a waste of my fucking time. It was a waste, <laughs> it's a complete waste of my fucking time. And he gets really angry. It's like, Jesus Christ, Dave, it's okay. Oh God, I'll have to listen to that. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, what else? What else? Oh, there's a, there's a novel that I came across recently, which is brilliant. Desert Trilogy by Eliam Cryam, which wow. has a Hollywood aspect to it. It's an extraordinary 
sweeping story uh, that goes from Ireland of the 1800s to Hollywood of 2014 um, and is just like an amazing book. I, I absolutely loved it. It's sort of, yeah, it's just kind of an epic. It, I, I found it very emotional, actually. Mm. There's, a, there's, there's all kinds of different eras in it. There's some stuff about the war, Second World War and um, that's fascinating. And then finally, there's this amazing book called Shooting and Cutting. Stephen Bradley. Now, I've, I've, I think I've heard of this. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a must read. I mean, of all of them, that's the one that your, your listeners should should immediately snap up. Oh, I tell you what, your sales figures are going to go reach into the high teens when they've heard, when they've heard this podcast. I hope so. I don't want you to go silly. Don't go silly with the money. I don't want you to go getting one of those designer <laughs> drug addictions or, or something like we, that. We will have half a pint on the terrace of the Carlton. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it'll sell that many. <laughs> Will you will you uh, will you be around at the festivals next year? You um, probably not next year. The following year, I would hope. Sure. Uh, next year, I'm kind of hoping is, you know, these sh- things shooting it's like it's like a hostage to fortune saying this at all. Sure, but um, yeah, I'd love to be shooting a film next year. In which case, I'll be, you know, shooting and posting. And I mean, you know, ideally, in an ideal world, those two films could go fairly back to back. Brilliant. Which Brilliant. is what John Borman always used to say in the old days when John Borman was in his prime. He, he said, you need to be shooting the next one when the last one comes out. Yeah, so, yeah. You know. I always liked J- the James Cameron's idea as a writer. He always used to have two scripts going at the same time so you could just move from one to the other you know, simultaneously. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. And, and he probably has, he has 40 other writers slaving away <laughs> writing things for him as well. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's when he became rubbish when he was able to do that. You know, when it was just him, he wrote Terminator and the Abyss at the same time, you know. It just just yeah, moving from one project to the other in the space of a night, you know, do two hours on this, two hours on that. Yeah. But then when you get success and you can afford to do that and you're not you're not as hungry anymore, then yeah. you find yourself making the avatar sequels and going to the bottom of the yeah, yeah, Mariana Trench. I know. Strange, strange, but it's, it's, listen, writing screenplays is tough, as you know, Mm. so um, we have to forgive all foibles. Definitely, definitely, (laughs) on that generous bombshell. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for talking to me, Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Brilliant, John, thank you very much. Okay, so that was my conversation with Stephen. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to him. It was a real, it uh, felt like we were very much coming from the same sort of cultural background and some some very similar experiences mixed in there. Um, and it was just a real pleasure to, 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 to have that conversation. His recommended books, uh, well, I, there were so many, I can't remember them all at the moment. I'm going to have to go back over the episode and have another listen to, to, to pick them out. But his first one was uh, Conversations with Billy Wilder by Cameron Crowe. And that, I think, by merit of being the first one, uh, is the one I'm going to underline. And it's one I haven't read myself, so um, I, shall, I shall definitely be hunting it, digging it out um, 
on Stephen's recommendation. His last recommended book was, of course, his own book, Stephen Bradley's uh, Shooting and Cutting, A Survivor's Guide to Filmmaking and Other Diseases. And if you haven't already been convinced to buy it, I highly recommend it. All that's left is for me to thank Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Howard for the art, and thank you listeners. Uh, You make this all worthwhile. Until next week, take care. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.